When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. for having me um, yeah. just tell tell the audience more about yourself that, that they wouldn't have known okay well um, to get started um, uh, I just retired from from the university after 50 years of uh, service uh, at Howard um, I actually preceded those 50 years as an undergraduate student here at Howard I was here uh, during the civil rights era from 1960 to 1964 um, took my preparation out into the world and uh, came back, taught Spanish uh, in the liberal arts school, what was called at the time College of Liberal Arts, uh, from 67 to 70. Went back out and finished my graduate work, PhD. Came back uh, to teach at Howard uh, in 75 uh, in the School of Communications. So um, I stayed in the School of Communication from 75 until I just retired. So yeah. I was consecutively a member of the faculty uh, from 75 to 2023. So I have a long history at Howard, not only as a faculty member, but first and foremost as a student and um, being part of, of student life, uh, the beginnings of student activism and so forth in the 60s um, helped shape me and my thinking about uh, the responsibility of activism and, and the importance of being engaged right. you know, when there's something to be contested or something to be involved with and how that began to impact my teaching and so forth. So uh, that's a little bit about me as we get started. You went on a crazy run at Howard. Oh, I did. Yeah, um, I've been through uh, enough that I've worked with six presidents. So. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, the lifeblood of the institution really is, is the continuity and commitment of faculty. Uh, administration comes, administration goes. The foundation of any institution would be the faculty and this commitment to be in it for the long haul, to, 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 to embrace its mission and, and the responsibility the institution has 
to be about um, making a difference in, in the mission that the institution has set for itself. I, I embrace that. Um, uh, I've always felt that as a faculty member, that's, that's the life I wanted to commit myself to. You know, so yes, I, I've, I've been in and through the long haul and um, had to adjust to all the changes that the institution has gone through and, 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 and how it impacted me and, and my thinking and my teaching, my, the material I worked with, you know, what I wanted my students to get and all that. And, you know, that growth takes time. You can't do that in a few years. Yeah. You, you, it needs time for you to learn how to be the professor you need to be. And you can only learn that by staying in the trenches and working with your students. Exactly. Because your students should be able to also help you become a better professor by the way they respond to what you do and how you do it and so forth. So, so um, that takes time. And, and you know, a lot of faculty members who are always moving around or can never seem to settle and so forth, um, they can't have the experiences I've had by simply staying in one place and staying committed to that institution and its growth, development. And of course, always being there for students and uh, assisting um, not only in their intellectual development, but also in their personal development, because my students have always seen me as the kind of faculty person they could talk to. I mean, you know, my students have often just come and talk to me, you know, mm -hmm. and um, it goes way beyond um, feeling that I'm uh, intellectually well prepared and, and and so I mean that's part of it but the other part of it is they find me open to them wanting to explore issues about themselves that they'd like me to weigh in on so they right. would come and talk about personal things that they you know and and that's when you know that your students have embraced you you know when it's not always about the lesson or, you know, could you clarify, you know, no, I mean, it's all about wanting to take the time to just hear what you have to think about something that they are taking the time to think about themselves. So I have to add that as one of the really positive things about um, having been a professor at Howard so many years is that I developed that kind of relationship with my students and, and it transcended the classroom. You know, and, and, and reached into the personal aspects of who I am and the challenges I face and, and, and wanting you to know that and then also share your thoughts about it and so forth. I mean, I think that's one of the most enriching aspects of, of university life is when, is when students embrace you like that. You know, I mean, that's, that's better than any kind of formal recognition for teaching excellence and all this kind of stuff because a lot of that is very formalistic. But students... Students come spontaneously. I mean, there's nothing they want to give you, or there's nothing they want beyond knowing what you think, you know, about something. So that's been a, a real joy in my life as a professor as well. I could imagine. Do you think that you being a professor whose students tend to open up more to it and everything, do you think that comes from as a result of your lesson plan, just kind of more focusing on the humanistic side of, of the students, or, or just life in general? Well, I, I've always wanted to feel that I provided content that provoked students to think beyond the classroom. And I've, I've always needed to feel that what I put on that syllabus and what I provided as the focus of what you and I are working on you know, together, that, that it had a lot more to do with your 
your personal as much as your intellectual development. Mm -hmm. And also I wanted to see you and, and other students who work with me connect material to the world. I mean, you know, where you have to feel that it's not just the lesson itself and what's in the lesson, because if everything of significance is, remains in the lesson, then there's very little beyond the lesson that was worth doing. You know, so I want students to feel that I'm preparing something for them that, that touches them personally. So I want my material to express what, I, what it is I want you to get from me. Exactly. You know, it's, it's not just how well you do on this, you know, the formal aspect of evaluation. All this kind yeah. of stuff. No, it, it's I want you to be a thinker. I, I, I want to know that you understand why I think this material is something you should cover. And if you don't know, then you should ask me. I mean, I mean, you, 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 you should not just be in a class and just go through what the, the professor has provided without also having a sense of what am I learning about this professor from how the professor has structured the content of class. And I think that's part of it. And I think my students were feeling things about me from the material I was asking them to, to, to work on with me that there was another dimension to me, Yeah, you know. Um, and I think that also um, was inviting to them. I mean, you go talk, okay, well, mm. and then I would say things in class where I wanted students sometimes the shock effect, you know, just just think about this, you know. You know, you're supposed to be looking at me funny. Well, why would he say something like that, you know? Or, or hmm, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, if, if, if you're not what I like to call provocative, you know, where you're not, you know, going after people's, you know, being settled and sedate in where they are and so forth, then, then you're, not, you're not doing what the professor needs to do. And yeah. that's to motivate, to challenge, to inspire. Yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, you know, I want to see if you're going to do some thinking about this. And what is that, you know? Because that's how I grow, too, as a professor. Exactly. It's through my students. I, so. I agree 100%. I think that something that I learned from your course, I feel like one of our first lessons that you had to do was what does it mean to be a human? Yes, and I can say for for me in that particular time and period of my life, I was really 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 starting to understand more about myself and, mm -hmm. and what it meant to just be a, a human and, and just what my purpose is while I'm on this planet. And I think that the course was advanced public speaking. Yeah, and I feel like one of the biggest tenets of public speaking is actually feeling it yourself. Yeah, and actually being confident. About, about what you're saying. And I think that mm -hmm. when you have a great understanding of your, your overall purpose and, and why you're speaking to this crowd, it makes public speaking so much easier. It does. Um, you know, it took me pretty much a whole career uh, to finally get to the point where I asked myself a question as a professor, and that is, who am I in the classroom for my student? What do I want to be for them? What do I want them to take away that is memorable from the time that we, we spent together? And, and I think one of the topics um, that the social sciences and the humanities can and should open up for students is that first fundamental question of how do we frame an understanding of what it means to be human? You know, I mean, I, I, I know a lot of students who wondered, you know, isn't that rather obvious? 
you know, um, being human is 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 something that I don't think should be too profound, you know, or provocative in terms of you know what I should be thinking about. There's there's other stuff. I mean, it's sort of obvious what this, but it's not obvious. In fact, what what I wanted all of my students to get, even from a, a lesson that I structured in in the class with you, that even preceded that, was the concept of the foundation of meaning and where meaning comes from and and what does it mean for anything to mean all right i mean again that's one of those words that we tend to take for granted I mean, you know everything has a meaning and it's, it's our responsibility to learn what that meaning is and and and, and to use it and, okay but by raising the whole question of meaning as problematic or as something that should be viewed as open to challenge and so forth, then it, 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 it moves thinking about anything into a whole new dimension of openness that is the foundation of curiosity and the foundation of, of feeling reflective. When everything can be taken from the framework that is usually understood as and become problematic, or become open to new reflections and reconstitute it in a new way because new perspective is brought to bear on it. I mean, that's very challenging intellectually. Yeah. And if you're not asked to do that, then you tend to settle in on what's what is the status quo of how something is quote understood. This right. kind of thing. You know? right. And so, uh, even before getting into the whole issue of uh, what it means to be human, because I wanted to, to present that first is that uh, I, I want all of my students to understand that to be human is a real responsibility that many of us sort of like not take as seriously as we should because the world is constituted through primarily through human existence and human uh, decision-making, what we constitute and, and, and condition ourselves to in the world. All that's about us that we shape ourselves as we shape the world, that we are shaped by the things we shape. And the human beings are the only creatures empowered to do that. You know, So we don't come, and this is one thing I hope you got from me, and that is we don't come pre-constituted as beings of a certain nature to simply live out that nature until nature calls us home. I mean, I mean that's, that's almost animalistic. It is. You know, I mean, there's there's nothing special about humanity if that's all there is, you know. And yeah, people can make decisions, change things, invent this, do that. Yeah, but see, but that's still low level. The real issue is every human being, it, it has a power within themselves to impact, act on, reconstitute the world in which we live. But you have to have a sense of our humanity as as in, impacting you and looking to you in a responsible way to be about that, you know. Humans who simply live outside of a sense of their responsibility and their empowerment and, and really their, their, their connectedness mm -hmm. to the world in the way that the world needs to be altered and, and re reframed, reconstituted. Some of their humanity is simply left dormant. It's just simply left on the side while they engage in frivolous activities of just going along with a status quo or just, Precisely. you know, okay. You know, I want you to problematize your, your very existence. Who are you? 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I think that something yeah. that, that you really taught us in class, something uh, you taught us about an era that I really didn't know as much about, and that was the the um, the Renaissance. Yes. And yes. how prior to the Renaissance during mm-hmm. the Middle Ages, a lot of the people just... Mm-hmm. Like ninety percent of the population just went along with the status quo, yeah. just just being a just being a farmer, just be, yeah. just, just being a serf yeah. for your whole life, and nobody mm-hmm. questioned anything. Mm-hmm. And I thought that one of my biggest takeaways from from that part of the course was mm-hmm. it's very easy for a massive amount of people to just go along with the status quo, even if it's mm-hmm. not working for them. Yeah, and it it, mm-hmm. it takes it takes big periods of of you know enlightenment like the renaissance to where people can go back to the more humanities type of type of thinking and mm-hmm. thinking of I don't know what their actual purpose on this planet is instead of just mm-hmm. doing something because somebody else told you to do it for your whole life yeah well you know um, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, it, it, I, I wanted the the period of the middle ages to sort of be a provocative time when human beings intellectually were dormant. Um, and the question is, how did they get like that? Well, the main thing that I want to challenge my students to think about always is that the world is constituted by human beings. Whatever conditions we live, however we live them, human beings were instrumental in creating and imposing those those conditions of existence. And there is nothing in our existence as human beings that was not constituted by another human being other than yourself. Okay, you need to understand that that humanity is at work in the world that we live in, which is essentially a human world. Yes, we live on a planet, but human beings don't live on a planet in the sense in which animals live on a planet in an environment and go through, you know, ecological changes and all this kind of stuff related to nat- to a natural world. Human beings don't live in a natural world. They live in a humanly created, humanly constituted world. And in so many instances, the history of the world is that very few have really participated actively in constituting the world. Okay? And because that is the case, when they constitute it, they constitute it for themselves so that others will embrace it, internalize it, and live it on their terms. All right. And I, I, I don't think any period, certainly in European history, we can talk about the United States separately, but, but certainly the West was constituted in Europe. And how the West was constituted was primarily around, around two forces that were instrumental in shaping the lives of everyone who lived during that, that, that period. One was royalty kings, kingdoms, and, and, and the teaching of people to respect and indeed almost worship kingships, to be subservient to them, to want to be under their power, uh, under their dominion. I mean, they had to learn 
to think that a king was elevated. They had to learn to think that a family was royal. They had to learn all these things. And who were the beneficiaries? The ones, of course, who taught that and who were powerful enough to impose it exactly. and so forth. Okay. Well, the Middle Ages can be understood in turn. The other one, of course, the other force other than kingships is religion, is the institution of religion as human beings have configured it. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not saying religion is or is not what it, what it ought to be. I'm simply saying religion is what humans have chose to make of it. And it has often been designed to create servitude and to create a sense of obligation to domination, this kind of thing. And, and in the Middle Ages, we have a perfect example of both kingships and, and authority within the sanctity of a religious foundation and a religious community, dominated by those who benefit exactly. from, from, from this, you know, from the subservience of so I wanted I wanted to look at that dynamic and, and as we bridge from that to the Renaissance is how people began to question it. And and our in other words, our humanity during this period was really um, suppressed. I mean, you never lose your humanity. What you lose, if you accommodate to states, to conditions of domination, is you lose the will to let that humanity live because you're suppressed in your thinking about even the fact that you have that to develop. I mean, the church defines you as a sinner. The yeah. church defines you as having an obligation to the authority of the church. That's their form of meaning. That, that, that's meaning for them. And you internalize that. Exactly. So what you internalize is externalized through your behavior and, and your willingness to comply and, and so forth. Well, I, I, I always want to create first the condition and now I want you to think about it. Think about it from what I've already presented about how you know, systems of meaning are forged by human beings and internalized by others as mechanisms of control. I think okay. that. Oh, what were you about to say? Look, I'm, 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 I'm done. I think that one of the biggest things that kind of keeps us trapped as a society, like when I say that, I mean like the masses of people, we all just kind of go along mm -hmm. with the system because we're so scared of what lies on the other side. Yeah. I, I was watching this video yesterday, and this this black dude was saying that we we could literally uproot this entire system if 30 million people just just decided to just not do anything, just to not to go to work, not to do this, not to do that. And I'm not advocating for yeah. doing that, yeah. but it's just, it's just an example of how of how much power the masses actually have in terms of changing this this societal structure. But one of the biggest things that holds us back is fear. Yeah, you, you know, um, the, the willingness of people to accommodate to things that are not in their best interest has always been a very interesting issue. Um, even when you're told better, you don't do better. You know, human beings are, are malleable. What, we, what I mean by that is that, I mean, think of clay or think of putty or yeah. think of anything that you can just pull a stretch and, and shape as you will. Humans have that kind of character to them. You know, they can be um, adjusted. They, 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 they can be uh, molded, you know, into, and you don't mold them physically, you mold them Psychologically, emotionally, uh, attitudinally, intellectually—you—you're mm -hmm. you, actually constituting them as a certain kind of way of being in the world. 
Conformity is nothing more than the willingness to suppress one's humanity in order to conform to the humanity of others. Someone else has created conditions that have led you to want to be subservient in their service, this kind of thing. Um, the best way to liberate anyone is to challenge them to understand that the power to change that is not in the person who created it, but in the persons who have given it credibility and who have been subservient to it. That all power ultimately resides in the ones who participate in it, not in the ones who, who constituted it. Exactly. You know, and the system is designed to lead you away from thinking like that. And the more you conform, the less energy you put into anything that would challenge you to think otherwise. So conformity really is nothing more than a shaping and a molding of individuals to submit to a status quo that they did not participate in creating. All right. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's so true. Yeah. Um, so. I something I kind of wanted to apply that 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 idea to, to something that you've probably witnessed in your life. It made me think of well, when you were coming up in the nineteen fifties and sixties. There yeah. was the whole push against communism. Yeah. And everything like that, even though. They didn't really know, a lot of people didn't really know what communism actually was. They just yeah. saw it as the idea of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, that, that gets us back into language, yeah. you, you know, because the most powerful force in controlling anyone is the language that they subscribe to. And um, meaning, as we talked about earlier, you know, meaning is really not in things, it's imposed on things and whatever... Um, was going on at that time in the political arena, in the world of world power, in the world of, of, of hierarchy and, and, and the push for domination around the world and so forth, between the East and West, and, you know, between the United States, Russia, China, all of that, all of that stuff, you know, really has to do with the careful and, and, and selective use of certain words and, and putting on those words certain meanings that, that that must be internalized in order for you to come to a relationship with those words and to what those words represent that you also three see as a threat to yourself. You know, although people never met a communist, n never had a conversation with someone called a communist, um, much less that they have a conversation with someone called a capitalist. But <laughs> but but they. They knew to internalize the negativity associated with it. It was a devil term. I mean, it was a it was a term of condemnation. You, well, you know, blacklist. Yeah, it's a blacklist. So, so that that's the, that's the most powerful aspect of our humanity is the extent to which we allow language to be our master to to right. to um, construct and constrain the character of how we think. So we're not reacting to the person. We're not act, reacting to experiences we've had with the person. We're reacting, first and foremost, to a meaning complex that is either in favor of or totally in opposition to. And that's, that's what shapes and molds us. And we don't do the critical thinking to think about that. We don't. We, we, don't, we don't try to find the further facts about anything. Even, even like back then, you didn't have the internet and all the resources that we have today. And... Even today, yeah. people still don't do that. People still don't mm -hmm. 
do the further research to find something. If they see something that that looks a little that, that's kind of surprising, people just go along with it and don't yeah. question it or anything. Yeah, you know that that's one of the sad aspects of where we are today because um, the internet is probably the single most powerful one piece of technology. But more than that, it's one of the most powerful extensions of human intellect that has ever been created. It it opens up the whole universe of knowledge to you. Um, there's nothing that's not in some way available through it. Um, but in a certain sense, it's also overwhelming in the sheer volume of what it offers. So it's interesting that instead of seeing all of it as an open system of intellectual possibility and something that I can just find and challenge my, no, no, people tend to go to certain sections of it and settle into that. Right, right. Okay. P people still see it as, as, a, as, as something they can connect to and grow from, but they restrict the range of what it offers and they commit too quickly to a certain domain within it and become aligned with that and restrict their own. In fact, it can suppress your own development because, you know, I mean, there are certain websites that, that just have pretty much tell you in order for you to be a part of this group, these are the fundamental, these are the canons of belief and understanding that you must hold this kind of thing. Right. I think that yeah. stuff is so, it, it kind of shows maybe the, the part of, the human, of our human nature that, that always wants to feel a part mm -hmm. of something mm -hmm. and because you, you, just like you said, now we have all this information and people mm -hmm. still will go into their own little bubble yeah, on the internet. But, but you know, something that, that, that has, has disturbed me very much um, in relation to this is that, you know, as I've aged, uh, yeah, I am 81 at this particular point in my life. You know, I, I took a long time before, before I retired as a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I stayed because I, I, was, I was still feeling that this generation needed professors like me to, um, to challenge them in their thinking about, about something. Yeah. You know, and and um, I, I, I remember saying in class one time, uh, I said to my students, you know, all of you need to understand nobody can insult you without your consent. And, and, and I mean, their first reaction was, that's not true. I mean, people can insult you by saying and doing all kinds of things. You don't have to give your consent, you know? And, and, and because they've been part of a whole shaping and molding where certain things are simply understood as having a certain character. Right. And you stay connected to that. You stay fixed in that. You stay settled in that. That understanding feels good to you. That that feels like that's the way you should think. It's and comfortable. So it's comfortable to think like that. But when I say to you that you can't be insulted without your consent, then I'm asking you to think about your role in what it means to feel and be insulted. Because you're saying in effect that some that you are you are allowing someone to be able to do something to you that can only be done through the manipulation of meaning and words and understanding and so forth. That you yourself are you saying that you are a simply a an un, unsuspecting and and powerless victim of a certain intention on the part of another person to have you feel and, and understand yourself in a certain way, 
that, that that you can't combat that that you're 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 helpless and, and totally subject to right. to okay see by simply saying that I'm saying think about it I mean no one I'm, I can say this to, to anyone and everyone no one can insult me without my consent because I determine what meaning to assign to the behavior you just laid on me it's my responsibility to decide how I am going to assess what you have just tried to do. And if I choose to dismiss you, there is no insult. It's like it's. I mean, it's one of the biggest things when when you insult somebody and they ignore it. If you don't even you don't get the validation of hurting that person's feelings or whatever. Absolutely. In other words, by feeling insulted, you credited them with the ability to have power over you. All right. Think about it. I mean, you 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 don't give anybody the understanding that that your emotions are subject to their intentions. Right. No? I think um, something that, that you're really saying is, and in the four agreements, one of the agreements is don't take things personal. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how I apply that to mm-hmm. what you're saying is that mm-hmm. oftentimes when people do things to us or insult us or something like that, oftentimes they're doing it out of a place of their own discomfort, you know, mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. own hurt. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that lesson kind of talks about mm-hmm. if somebody insults you, you, you know, you don't need to get mad at them mm-hmm. because it's something that mm-hmm. it's something that they have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Because well, I mean, you don't see positive, happy people go around insulting and making people feel bad. Yeah, you know, you don't you don't see that too many yeah. people who have who have something going on in mm-hmm. their life or mm-hmm. just something mm-hmm. that they have discontent with mm-hmm. going around hurting people's feelings or whatever. So I I definitely apply that lesson to what you're saying right here because mm-hmm. I think that one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest things that we do, something that we do in society so much, is that we just—it's like we we want to be, we want to get insulted. We we want to have a chip on our shoulder really yeah. badly, and and I think mm-hmm. we, we kind of take that over over the top. Well, I think that's a, th- those are good observations uh, to keep in mind who's saying it and what's going on with that person. That there's something needy over there, or else they wouldn't have to be doing this. That's one thing. The other thing, of course, is people have their own dynamics about how they want to process things. I mean, yeah. there's something about you that is participating in this as well, you know? Um, so issues are always far more complex than what is ever presented, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I, I've always wanted um, my students to understand that um, we're powerful. Human beings, you're constituted to be powerful. In the way you really understand anything, it shouldn't have a substantive meaning until you have weighed in on it. It is not what it is until you have had the opportunity to say what it is for you. Right. I mean that that's that's powerful. And 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 when you even participate in in say foul language or someone saying something to you that's harsh and, and so forth. And you allow yourself to feel offended or you feel feel hurt by by what they said and so forth. You have to ask yourself why are you so vulnerable to to the actions of others to the point that you allow their them to control your emotions and your your mental and attitudinal state. I mean, what are you saying about yourself when you allow that to happen? This kind of thing, because there's a power in you to resist that. Why aren't you using it? There is a power. Okay, you know, I mean, don't you feel? that there's something that they are wanting to happen and that you're collaborating with it, that you are going along 
and, and crediting them with the ability to make that happen in you. I mean, what have you just said about yourself? You see, I mean, that, those are the kinds of things that I think when we ask ourselves what it means to be human, part of what it means to be human is, is shaping and molding yourself to be a presence and a strength in the world. And that no one can simply break you down or weaken you or, or, or render you helpless or, or question or lead you to question your integrity or your character or whatever by whatever they say or do. Because now that they have brought it to you, now the question is, okay, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to do about it? Okay. Includes how much of it am I going to allow to come into me? So what does it mean to be human? It means to be the master of your experiences and what those experiences mean to you and how it is that they shape and mold you for the world. That's an open dynamic. It's never closed. As long as it's open, then you are a powerful force in the world. You become weaker when it's shut down, when you suppress it, or when you surrender to the conditions that others set for you, then you weaken your own humanity. But you need to understand that you are doing that by participation in it. Now, unless somebody hurts you physically, renders violence upon you or something, I mean, that's, that's direct. Yeah. I mean, you can be powerless if somebody is stronger than you are and attacks you. And do, but, see, but see, most of the world in terms of growth experiences is not of that nature. Now, there's sufficiently much of it going on in the world now that we have to be even more careful than we've ever been. But the reality is that our, how we constitute ourselves as human beings is usually through our participation in experiences and how we allow those experiences to, to impact us, to shape and mold our thinking, our relationships. Exactly. You know, I mean, as a human being, we have the power to make everything what it is for us. Not just what it is in the world, but what it is for us. Because until we decide how it is for us, we haven't decided. It's just in the world. And I think that's okay. a big component of being a master of yourself. Yeah. Um, I think that something that I feel like social media kind of hurts with our generation, mm -hmm. it, it limits our abilities to actually master ourselves because we're always focused on the lives of mm -hmm. other people. Yeah. We're, all, we're always focused on what everybody else is doing instead of just kind of Instead of even just sitting in silence and giving ourselves a moment to think about yeah. what's going on in our lives, we're not yeah. trying to improve or anything like that, things of that nature. I think it definitely it, mm -hmm. it hurts us a lot in trying to find that 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 sense of self mastery, and it's it's almost it's tragic, like how we was talking about earlier. We have all this information now, mm -hmm. and there there are so many tools out there to help you master yourself. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. so many. Like not even not even to mention books, but just mm -hmm. online resources. Oh sure, YouTube channels, things that can mm -hmm. that can help you master yourself yeah. that mm -hmm. a lot of people just don't know about because mm -hmm. I mean you have to be put in a certain type of space to where you even start thinking about wanting to master yourself. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Josiah, it 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 all comes down to you know back to my fundamental question. You know, how have I allowed myself? To be constituted as a human being in the world in which I live, you know what? What do I bring in my humanity to the world as I live from day to day, experience its conditions, experience people? What do I want to challenge others 
to understand when they meet me or when they encounter me. I mean, who am I that I have something to offer anybody? What, what, what do I want people to feel when they meet me and, and feel that here's a human being that I haven't met before that has brought me something that I haven't encountered before, that, that said some things I haven't heard before, that, that is not just a person but an experience. I mean, you, you, want, you want to be the kind of person who challenges others to be reflective about themselves. You know, I mean, we, we're so concerned about the world and, and all that's going on around us that we don't realize that the most important thing that you can do in the world is impact the next person you meet, to be, to be a force for one, and, and, and to be a, that for yourself in a way that leads you to always be that for somebody else. And that's why I've always loved teaching. I've, I've never wanted to leave teaching. I've, I, I was offered many opportunities to go into administration, you know. And I remember a faculty member who, who had been promoted to a dean that, that I, I worked with for, for several years. He said, why, why aren't you um, in administration by now? You know, you, you, you continue to be in the classroom. You, you, you continue to be, you know, a faculty member. You can't, and, and, you know, I waited till he finished because I wanted him to get all that out. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, it really surprises me to hear you say that because, first of all, you have to know that being a faculty member at the university is the best job that the institution offers. There is no job at the university higher of greater growth potential than to be a faculty member. Among other intellectuals, engage with them horizontally you know nobody's above anybody else we're all in there together we you know we want to know what you think okay and then to be with your students and feel that you are trying to sh help shape and mold conditions that can shape and mold minds and spirits because you can't change people what you can do is create conditions that allow them to undergo experiences where they want to change themselves okay and 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 to be able to do that and feel that you're doing it for your your people. I mean, yeah. to even give it a political, ideological it makes it slant. It, it, absolutely, it it means that you're helping impact the world through the people you impact. I mean, it gives you the opportunity to know that when somebody leaves you, they got something on their mind. You know, because that's all you can ask students to do is think on these things. I mean, you can't put something in somebody's head. You know, you don't have the power to shape people's thinking. Don't think all you can do is shape the conditions through which they think. They have to decide what goes in and what, you know, stays out. But you want to do it in such a way as you want to challenge them to say, hmm, this, this man won't leave me alone with this stuff. <laughs> he, he, he keep coming at me, but what does he want? You know what I mean? You have to give them something that you're saying is so important, I'm not going to leave you alone about it. Well, you think, I want to know how you feel about the concept, what it means to be human. That's significant, because you are one of those. And for you to have the thinking that leads you to understand the power in, on, in, in that concept, and why, how, how you understand that is so critical to who you are and, and, and what you're going to do in your life, 
It should be molded by that by a concept of, of your humanity. And why should, it should matter that you even have a thought about it. Right. You know, why should it even matter that you think about it? Most people who are dominated never ask. They never ask. They don't question. They don't question. Because theirs is a life of the belly. They have to decide how I'm going to get what I'm going to eat next. Okay? They, they, they're so consumed. That's how the system wants it. Always, that, always well, that's, to that, that's why I wanted to go through the Middle Ages. Right. <laughs> See, because domination is about that. It, 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 it tells you to focus exclusively. On, on your primary biological needs and, and your and your responsibility to be, to be subservient. You see, and, and, and power is such that the best thing you can do is try to avoid being a, drawn to power's attention. Be small, un, unknown and un, invisible, unrecognizable. And the best way to do that is to be humble and quiet, still, silent, so that you're not recognized. You know, no attention is drawn to you, and but but that's also for your own survival. Because the less attention is drawn, the greater the likelihood that you will be ignored. This kind of thing, you know. How do you think that what you're saying has applied to the black community, particularly since the nineteen, I say the late nineteen sixties? Because it seems like, um, in in the choice, um, Samuel Eddy talks about how the United States had three options: uh, pacification, liquidation, or liberation. Yeah, and they chose the pacification, mm-hmm. and that seems that's 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 what we see in our current, and, and that's what we see in the black community today. There's, there's a lot of nobody really wants to fight because everybody, a lot of people are, are are comfortable. People are comfortable in position, even though they could be a lot happier. Their their needs are met just enough to where you feel like everything is okay, and not all black people feel like that, but but just enough black people feel mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. to where. You, you can't really organize any type of movement like how we had when you were coming up. Yeah, well, you know, that whole issue about the transformation of a people from a world of containment and isolation, marginalization, that was certainly the world that I uh, experienced through my 40s and 50s, the 50s and um when I was growing up in D.C. But the one thing we had that was very strong at that time, and and this was before the Civil Rights Movement was really launched, um, we had a sense of community, very strong sense of community, because black people lived together. I mean, segregation was real, you know? Uh, I grew up in Northeast Washington, D.C., and throughout the entire community, you know, there were, in addition to homes, buildings, all this kind of stuff, there, you know, there were playgrounds, there were churches, there were schools. They were all just available to us. It was a very rich community that we all lived in, and we all feel, felt connected to one another. People helped each other out, you know. Churches really took care of people on weekends. I mean, my father built a church. My, my mother was very instrumental in, on the weekends, uh, serving dinners to the needy. You know, I mean, there was a sense of looking out for the least of these. You know, I mean, black people during that period, although they were formally marginalized in, in, the, in that formal system called segregation, all this kind of stuff, they did so much that was good internally for each other. And there was a strong sense of connectivity, you know, that, that people had to one another. 
Yeah, there were some gangs and there were some bad boys and, and all, but I mean, you know, they didn't bother you, you know, you know, you stay, I, I, you know, I didn't run with a gang and all this, but it, 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 it was never a situation where there was too much violence against each other. It was always contained. Mm-hmm. And we had a street culture, you know, a whole language, a folk language culture. Where you could, you know, what, what what we call back in those days, joning. We call it joning, but people call it playing the dozens or sounding or whatever. It doesn't different names for it. Where males, during times of tension, would would either have to do one of two things, and that is knuckle, what we call knuckle. You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, you'd have to go at it physically, yeah. or you would go at it verbally. I mean, you would stand up against one another, and you would have to, you know use your skill as a verbal artist, you know, of the word, you, you know, and, and stand your ground, and, you know, you know, mutual insults and this kind of stuff, and, and you get people laughing and stuff, you know, you know, you know, and, and you could do that even as, as I was, relatively small in stature, yeah. you know, I, I wasn't going to fight anybody, I'd be taken out, you know, but I had something else that, that, that amused people, you know, so you could actually get out of hot spots by, by tapping into some cultural gifts that you had that 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 could give you some recognition and this, this kind of thing. I mean, all that was community. Black folks somehow worked it out. They didn't go after each other. They didn't, you know, they didn't make it hard for each other. And but see, something has happened, and that is with desegregation, with black people now no longer by virtue of the world in which they live with one another in a life constituted that black people constituted for each other. Now we're no longer connected the way we were um, out of a sense of we need to hold on to something that's ours because the world out there is against us but we have to make sure we protect each other. I mean I got a solid education in black schools in Washington DC. And I was prepared for the world when I left because my teachers took time with me. And why? Because we didn't want our students, our young people going out into the world unprepared. That was black, that was the black community. But see so much, I mean this can take a whole session itself, but so much has happened to disconnect us from one another. I mean one of the whole consequences of so-called desegregation, I don't call it integration because we've never fully been integrated. But, but, But certainly desegregation was the loosening of those ties that black people had to one another. So much is open now. Black people no longer sometimes see themselves as having to be about, you know, helping a brother or a sister out. I mean, that was, you just grew up with that sentiment, you know, and so. It wasn't forced. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was the lifeblood of the community. I mean, it's enough that they don't like us, but we certainly are not going to put that on each other kind of thing, you know, I mean, there was that, that kind of, I was always, I always felt safe, and I, I never felt that, that, that I had to be apologetic to anybody, or careful about who was wearing what, no, you know, I mean, we had community, all right, but I see now there's the loosening of that, of the bonds, and there's an openness about even what it means to be black, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't even, we haven't even settled in on what that means, you know, and we're not going in the direction of wanting to, right. okay, so, so, there's this openness now, which means that the more open something is, the greater the likelihood that you're going to get lost in it, all right? I mean, there was, the boundaries shouldn't be so thin and so extensive and weak that within that, everything becomes possible, 
Okay, this guy. And I think that's where we are now. I think you know? it's um, it's 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 so disheartening to 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 see that because I feel like a lot of a lot of black kids growing up, uh, especially my generation, and maybe even before that, we haven't been taught about that type of black community yeah. as much. I feel like we don't learn yeah. about the more positive aspects of segregation. Right. I think, and you know, you just outlined the positive right there is how, how much of a sense of community there was oh, in yeah. a time when that community yeah. was needed. Yeah. And it's, it's sad to see that because we still need that community now more than ever. Oh, I, I, I don't think we've ever not needed that. I, I think the most important thing we've ever needed was the spirit of being connected to one another in a way that says that I care enough about you to know that part of how well I do should be somehow you know, connected to how well you do. Um, when I was in school, it was always clear that there was some there were some kids who needed some help with reading. Well, in the school, we always made opportunities not for teachers to teach them, but for each other to teach them. Yeah, we taught each other. All right, I was always in an in, in an accelerated class, but they always made opportunities for you to help those who were coming along a little bit more slowly, and kind of thing. Um, that spirit of being there to be of assistance where assistance is needed is something the community still needs because it, it really hurts me quite frankly today to see how much violence is coming out of the black community that is intra-community violence okay because that represents the loss of something that we once had when you can hurt your brother or your sister and, 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 and be so constituted that, that one, you want to do it, okay? And then two, um, not feel the hurt or the consequences of this from a, an affective or moral sense, you know? I mean, it's just the way things are now, you know? And, and it's, it, it really hurts me because that's almost like going on with, going along with the program of degradation that has been planned for you. Exactly. That, 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 okay, that, that, that has been that, planned. Yeah, I mean, it's designed to, to instill in you a sense of hopelessness, a disconnectivity, um, um, a kind of meanness that comes from a low self-concept. I mean, none of us in segregation grew up thinking like that. You know, you, you knew that the world was going to challenge you, but your, your business now in this segregated environment was to get ready as best you could for that. Right. And the whole community was about helping you get there. Even the church had programs that supported the school. Everybody wanted to get everybody. Everybody. It was all about seeing each other as, as an opportunity for me to do something that I need to be about doing. And even young people, you know, they didn't, they didn't offend people's property or or, or be insulting to, to adults, and, and so somebody call your name. Yes, ma'am. I mean, you were polite I mean, because if, if you got home, since everybody knew everybody, your mom and daddy would have known about it before you got there, mm-hmm. and they were waiting for you. Waiting for you. You know, I mean, it's like what? I mean, you're being reared to understand that you have obligation to others. You have to be respectful. 
I mean, if adult says something to you, I mean, we all here for you. I mean, don't you don't have to worry about them. They're not gonna hurt. Them. They're not after you. Kind of, you know, there, there's a responsibility you bear, and all that, all that's gone now. Yeah, it's gone. An, an observation that I've made in that sense, it seems like when black people desegregated and when it started moving away from the community and everything like that, we had lost that sense of of, of African communal unity yeah. that mm-hmm. that that we that we got from mm-hmm. Africa. I think that once we desegregated and we and we came in, and we came into more mainstream American society, mm-hmm. we embraced a lot of those more individualistic aspects that 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 the West kind of glorifies in a broader sense. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, cultures are either individualistic or communalistic. Yeah. And Western culture is uh, almost almost exclusively individualistic. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, communal values are, are, are not elevated very much. I mean, it really the question comes down to what do you want, the kind of thing, you know. Um, some communities can do okay with that, especially com- communities that have traditionally held power. You, you can be like that because the assumption is you're going to be a participant in that power. You're mm-hmm. going to share it and, you know, and, and going it as an individual helps you get there and do what you need to do once you are there and that kind of stuff. Communalism really is not about, you know, highs and lows. It, it, it really is about the horizontal. Everyone should be felt as connected to each one at the same level of humanity, you know. There are many communal cultures today, but they're under threat because of worldwide globalization, which has been underway for some some time. Yeah. Um, so the movement of the world increasingly, which is why the world is in a very dangerous place today as we go forward, is that the movement of the world is away from communalism and more in the direction of individualism, all right? wanting to participate in, in the, quote, concept freedom. That's why the concept freedom is a double-edged sword. It, it's, people speak of it as it's, it is an absolute positive and worthy concept, you know? But um, it's not, because freedom also is a very dangerous concept. It is. You know, because you don't define freedom purely from a political perspective of equality and justice before the law, all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a way of looking at, at freedom. But there's also the freedom of the individual to be able to do what the individual wants for itself. That kind of freedom is, 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 is not only dangerous, it's destructive of, of humanity itself. Because we see the consequences today of too much freedom, in that sense, of people who are dominated, dominating, um, feeling that they are free to shape and mold the world to their own interests and their own benefit, and, and so and screwing everybody else. That's right, but that's a kind of freedom. So one of the problems we have with words and, and is is that you glorify a concept that really was predicated on the freedom of only a few people exactly. and those who dominated their freedom to be able to construct the world for you. This kind of thing. You weren't free. That's the power of language right that, there. That, getting, getting the masses to to feel like what you're telling them is what they want when when they really don't get the same amount of power that, that you'll get 
Once you once you achieve what your end goal is, absolutely We're talking about the elite and everything. Yeah, and and we've we we've seen that uh, see in this last election where <clears throat> black people made a tremendous difference in terms of who would be you know in the White House. Black people showed up. Yeah, they their vote made made a tremendous difference, which which led those in power who 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 lost, so to speak, recognize that they're beating us at our own game because they're showing up and, and, and taking the tools that we've created for ourselves and using them against us. This kind of thing. So now what do you do? You suppress those tools. You, you, you have to now you know, change the law, which is one of the tools, so, so that you impede access to you, so you restrict participation. You do it because they know that they, they've learned something about you know, how to play this game and, and they're organizing so that they can do it better than we do it these kind of and, and, and become a force. Well, what are we gonna do about that? Because what they've done is they've exceeded the boundaries that were set for them. Yeah. They have become more sophisticated as planners and organizers. They have, they have pulled it together and recognized how to use power, how to use the mechanisms and structures of power what democracy offers. And if you only learn how it works, work it. It's kind of, they, they, they're, they're learning too much about what it, we always had for ourselves. They, they're participating in ways that they would never envision that they would participate. We see <clears throat> black people, at least black people are recognizing that they have within themselves the ability to impact the world in a way that works at least minimally to a certain extent in their own best interest. I mean, the power structure is still dominated in a way that doesn't change too much too fast, yeah. you know? So don't think that you've achieved a whole lot because you're still putting in power people who don't represent you. Exactly. It's, kind of thing, you know? it's the same thing. I mean, that's kind of, yeah. the, that's the trick of the American system. You know, yeah. if you, you have these two political parties, you mm -hmm. make it, who, who each make it seem like what they're trying to do is is big substantial change, but the purpose of those parties is just is just is just to keep the status quo going. Yeah, well, that you know that's one of the dynamics that power has had to adjust to, and that is you can't just be in your face power, violence, suppression, confinement. I mean, you know that kind of power, overt power, in your face power, has had to be adjusted. You know, there was a time that they could do it, and I worry about what you thought about it. Mm -hmm. you know, okay, well, the world has changed a little bit. Well, that blatancy. Is something you have to sort of like adjust, this kind of thing. But they still have the mechanisms of power that, that don't give you but so much as a benefit from your participation. Right. And so there, there is something about that dynamic that we need to become a little bit more sophisticated about in terms of who represents us. And, and certainly one thing I, I hope black people press for, and I, you know, it's, I think it's just a matter of time before this comes to the American public. Is we need something other than a two-party system. We do. We do. We do. We do. We do. You see, I mean, anything that's divided into two is e either or. It's a disjunction. It's a bifurcation. It, it's, it's it's take it or leave it kind of thing. You know, you, you need options. I mean, you know, when it comes to the broadness of human thinking and perspective and all the issues that we need broad perspective that can't come from two parties and you see from what has happened to where we are now 
a party can settle in on a personality, which has nothing to do with ideology, which has nothing to do with ideas. He has to push us forward. It has nothing to do with it. Nothing. You know, so if we only have two options, see, then one of those can move in that direction. And that is exactly what has happened. So we need to expand the territory of participation by expanding the possibilities for what it is that we are asked to consider. And I, I, th- I think something else to go with that, I feel like when we were, earlier we were talking about humans and we we go along with this system because there have been third party candidates who run, but mm-hmm. we don't mm-hmm. vote for them. Yeah. We don't vote for them. We we mm-hmm. never want mm-hmm. to um, change that yeah. system. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. But if if you if you go into the politics of the nineteenth century, you know, the politics of of social movements leading up to the Civil War and so forth, there were there were there was a plethora of political parties. I mean, there, there was even a party representing the labor movement. There was, there was. I, they had a presidential candidate run in 1920, 1920, I believe. Yeah, yeah look, uh, the point, I mean, but even, but even even before that in the 19th century. Right, yeah, they, yeah. They, they had political parties where, where they, they, had, they had a party for farmers, farmers alliance. Okay, I mean, they, they had parties that represented people's interests who needed their interests to be represented in the challenging domains of power. So they had to form parties and, 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 and find spokespersons to help promote those parties. They ran for, for office. I mean, they had options. Eventually, we settled on a two-party system simply because you know, power became more and more concentrated. Right. All right? And parties joined existing parties that were stronger. So, so we gave up the diversity because power was ruling the political spectrum. And people began to surrender their diversity and the the importance of having options to the dominance of just two. And this is the way we are today. It's an unworkable system in a democracy. Democracy is about openness and diversity. Democracy says we want all the ideas on the table. At its core, yeah. You know, we want to hear the debate on, we, we want to hear the merits of each. I mean, since when did the intellect of humanity come down to only two options? Never, ever. Ever. And, and I feel like when you think about the 2020 election, you think there, there are no new ideas being pushed in that election by either side. I mean, you have Joe Biden who's running to, to prevent Trump from winning, and then Trump who's not really pushing anything, any mm-hmm. new ideology. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you're not pushing for a new progressive candidate who actually wants to change and help fix the society that we're in. It's kind of just... Joe Biden's trying to preserve the status quo, and Trump is, I, I, Trump, Trump is just, you know. Well, you know, it, 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 he's simply the person of the moment, but it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter who it is. Is that we put ourselves in the position of being underserved by a two-party system. We, we are not able today, I am so drained of hearing about this opposition between these two candidates. As if the only thing that really matters is okay, how are we going to make sure one or the other gets in office? I mean, I mean, what an intellectually draining, low-level experience that is for a people at this time in human history. 
to be subjected to that kind of narrowness and that kind of constrainedness. As, as we try to face the challenges of the the world right now is in a very vulnerable and a very dangerous state. It is. We have created for ourselves technology and, and other kinds of, of, of powerful forces that can lead ultimately to our destruction. And all it takes is the wrong person in power hitting the wrong button to get us there. I mean, we have to understand how close we are to annihilation. And the ideas that we hear today are not the ones that we should be thinking about. Yeah. Because we're too much focused on individuals, not really what they represent. Their opposition to one another. And all that's associated with picking one or the other. And not only that, but look at the world powers. We're no longer talking about the ideas that bring us into cooperation with one another. Because each, each of the world powers is sort of like going it its own way and wanting to find its domains of dominance. Mm -hmm. China's now in Africa. Okay, so others are trying to get there too. So, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's now this, this quest for domination that each nation is, is going its own in order to establish. There used to be this push for, for, for world cooperation. You know, this feeling that if we don't learn to cooperate, then we will certainly move into the arena of world combat, this kind of thing. Yeah, we're going the opposite. So, we, see where we are now? You know, you know, I mean, even the United Nations that was formed immediately after World War II, the mm -hmm. whole, the, the ostensive purpose of that was make sure we never get here again. We cannot afford to get here again. With right. technologies of warfare getting even more powerful, we cannot allow this to ever happen again. We formed an organization, but no one who put their name on the line respects it. It's still there. It is. It's still ceremonially significant. You wouldn't even really know. You, you wouldn't know because it has no consequence. It has no consequence. It has no consequence. It has no, it has no power to act. No, because the dominant, that's right. There's no sanction. There is nothing that any nation can do that the United Nations can alter by virtue of any decision that it might make. Because the big powerful nations of the world can simply ignore it. Right. And go its own way. You talking about the United Nations made me think of Malcolm X. Yes, and, and how he wanted to bring bring the case of Black people to the United, United Nations. Nations. Yeah, you know, in 1964, yeah. 65. Yeah, and it's I like it makes me think what what could he have done with that? Because I mean, even mm -hmm. that time, the United mm -hmm. Nations was kind of pretty much kind of how it is today. It was ran yeah. by the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that. I was watching a video of him speak yesterday, and he, he he was talking about this is what black people were going through, and what we still go through today. Is, you know, it wasn't a civil rights issue; it was a human rights yeah. issue. Like we yeah. are being denied basic humanity. Yeah. And and in a lot of cases, we still are yeah. denied basic humanity. You know, we're mm -hmm. always judged by mm -hmm. by by who we are. We're always dehumanized. Yeah. Something I've like I've brought up a lot recently yeah. is how whenever a black man is killed by the police or some or some type of authority or, or mm -hmm. just by another black person, you always there's always like a push to humanize him. You know, talk yeah. about how mm -hmm. he was a good student. You know, he mm -hmm. was a good person. He was he was such a great person. He didn't deserve this. You know. Yeah. It seems like we have to do extra in order to humanize ourselves. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is important that Malcolm did by wanting to do that 
was he certainly recognized that power is is not worried about your opposition because I mean he expects for you to be unhappy with the conditions he imposes on you and that you will react. What he's concerned about is how contained is your reaction. And what Malcolm recognized is that too much is try is, is connected to struggle here. But the struggles that we have here are universal struggles. And he recognized the importance of connecting the struggle here with struggles of other peoples yeah. around the world that the United Nations expressed a concern about. So he wanted the black struggle here to receive universal, international recognition. Plus, if the United States at that time, as he knew, was the leader of the free world, people need to know what you're doing here. People need mm -hmm. to know. And the voice of America, which is the American voice to the world, didn't include any of that. So therefore, he said, you know, we need to take this worldwide. We need to open this up and connect our struggle to other struggling peoples of the world. That made him especially dangerous. It made him super dangerous. Because now you see, you're, the, you're, you're threatening the whole world order of things. Oh, oh you know, they had no problem with now Malcolm calling white people devils. You know, they have a problem with that. You know, because that's nothing but language. Exactly. You know that you you you're you, you tell my me is it? You know, and of course, was he a devil at the time? He knew that. He wouldn't want somebody doing to him what he was doing to you. So yeah, he he knew he was mean and 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 ugly and nasty to to you. Yeah. But but your reaction was always a concern to him, and when Malcolm took it to that level. And you also have to keep in mind that that even later with Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. See, he wanted to take the issue of the black struggle to the struggle in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. he, that, he, that, he that's when you start screwing things up. You see, that, that's when, it's, it, isn't it interesting that in both instances, soon after they did that, they were assassinated. Now, I'm not connecting any particular group to that. All I'm simply saying is that once you internationalize, a struggle that is contained at home, you become dangerous in terms of how the world now can become a factor right. in what this means. Because after all, the leader of the free world can't be doing things like this. Not, and that, that see, was, that's and, one of the and, biggest contradictions of America during the Civil Rights Movement, and that's why you can point to a lot of changes why America had to do something. Because if you want to be the leader of the free world, like you're saying, is you can't, and especially if you're trying to go into other nations that have that have people who are of darker skin mm -hmm. you, you you can't be dehumanizing and, and spraying water hoses at and lynching black people in your in your home country because they're like oh is that gonna happen to us we're not gonna let you come here we're gonna go to russia see now we're talking on something that is very significant to the concept of what real power is the power not only to be who you are where you are but to be a power elsewhere which can be damaged by certain things being known about you that people, you know, have to now factor into how they see you. Exactly. It's very interesting that after Malcolm and and, and um, Martin Luther King <clears throat> began to do what they did in terms of promoting this, that 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 American society did loosen up a little bit. You know, Civil Rights Act was passed, Voting Rights Act was passed. Mm -hmm. Stuff started opening up. 
you know, so that these actions of accusing America of being an oppressive, intolerable nation, you know, that, that does not espouse freedom at home, so how can it be about promoting it abroad? And so, see, that contradiction had to be addressed, right? And so there was some loosening up, you know, of the, of, of the constraints, you know, this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it's, it's very important that black people realize that, you know, there's a lot of power in how you assess the moment and what, what needs to be done. What, what can you do that can be so pivotal in, in, in altering a status quo? Because Malcolm, Malcolm was the first to really do it at, at, at the international level. The civil rights movement, when he, when he, when he wanted to go to, to the United Nations and present a statement, I mean, people had to sit back and say, oh no, see now, see now something has to be done. Because the world now is gonna be looking at us as hypocrites. Exactly. And they're gonna to wanna to say, okay, what else is going on over there? They're gonna start counting how many jails we have. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know what I mean? Relative to the population, we have more jails than any country in the world. Yep. Okay. I mean, yet, but yet you're supposed to be all about freedom and dignity and all this kind of stuff. Then why do you need all those prisons? What are you doing with those prisons? What is it? I mean, who's in there, by the way? Okay, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So, so you start asking those kinds. They, they, had, they had to say, look, we need to change the character of how we present ourselves even here. And now, and so, we talk about you know, jails. That was before mass incarceration. Yes, it was. Way before, yeah. I mean, that mass incarceration didn't happen until the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Right, and it, it's I mean it's gotten much worse oh, yeah. since. But well, it has. Well, it has. You know, because I mean, you know, I, you know, a prison system serves a lot of purposes. The the the, the least probably is rehabilitation. The least, you, you know, I mean that that's that's probably, and and you know about the the um, the the prison lease system, you know, the convict lease yeah. system. Where, where people were put in prison to become captive labor, you know, for American capitalism and so forth. Who was in that? Black people. Yeah. Black music. So, so, you know what I mean? All of this, you know, all of this is coming out now. I mean, fortunately, we are aware of this, and the world is aware of it. We've embarrassed us, ourselves, I think, internationally, politically, what we've done with our elections and, and, and the cult of personality around those who gained the White House and, 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 and the manipulation of the poor, all this kind of stuff. Um, it, it doesn't speak well to a nation that should be imitated. Let me, let me put it like that. You know, I mean, there's too much that's been exposed now that says, you know, you need to come over here and look at how we deal with things. There's something you can learn from us. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's something you can learn from us. I mean, even Germany, how Germany came to its senses after World War II and recognized the role that it played in Nazism, how tolerable they were of its abuses and so forth. They had to confront their Germanness and their humanity and say, you know, we were better than this. We, we, we've had to, they've had to recover from what they did. Now, the fact that they put up memorials, and there have been some mm -hmm. reparations. They, 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 they have come to grips. They've opened up the, rea the reality that we did wrong. But see, America has never faced the reality of human slavery. 
They've never been forced to. They, they, they've never done that. And, and, and there's a suppression, really, of even wanting to examine that historically. S students in school are not exposed to it. I mean, and really opening up what it means for a nation that was founded on the principles that we were founded on. How could we put this over here to the side and think that this was real? And, exactly. and, and so, I mean, w w that contradiction, is it still alive with us today? If so, how? I mean, w we have never as a nation wanted to examine that and understand its consequences for us as, as a nation. And everybody just you goes know? along with it. Right. So, so it's those kind of things that I think speak to the continuity of division and injustice that we still as a nation must, must grapple with. I mean, I would be the last to say there's been no changes of any substantive nature. Of course there have been. I mean, I earned a Fulbright that was given to me by the State Department in 1964 when I finished Howard University. All right? A lot of what was going on during that time led to the openness of, of what happened to, that allowed me to do that. I was able to go to the University of Texas in 1965, which was the most racist university in the South in 1965, relative to the number of blacks in the student body. All right, that wouldn't happen without some changes that, that, were, that were taking place. So there have been some things that have happened, um, but we shouldn't count those little things, or what, the benefit that I got. No? Yeah, as, that's as, Yeah, see, that, that's all about me ma making something happen, you know. Because I also had some something to put on the table too. Exactly. Is that, exactly. you know how it prepared me to compete nationally, and I got me a, a Fulbright. Okay, but that's me. All right. But so I don't use that as saying that because it happened to me, it's it's open and possible for everybody. So, but yet there are openings that are possible, but we're not unified around you know how we how we achieve those things. We're not, so. We are fed so much into that, into that individualism, and I feel like yeah. something that hurts us is we look at a lot of black billionaires, and, and we think, oh, they need to help us, and it's like mm -hmm. they're they're not the ones who are going to help us. We need to help each other at the collective level. Yeah, but the problem with big money doing good things is that it's only limited to just the people who are impacted directly. Right. What we need is systemic transformation. You know, we we need we need a nation committed to a, a decision that we will not tolerate poverty in our land. We, we need a nation that will make sure that everyone has adequate health insurance. We need to make sure that all of our children are, are living in healthy conditions. We, you're only as good as a nation, you're only as good as you treat the most vulnerable of your citizens. And when you let them suffer or somehow you disparage them or you don't set up conditions to really address their needs and so forth. Your character has been exposed. And so therefore, we need to say, we're ashamed of it. We, we're ashamed. We, we know better and we know how to do better, but we don't do better. We don't do better at all. You know, and that says something about where your commitments lie, you know? And if you know where your commitments are, all you have to do is follow the money. Where is it going? Who benefits from it and so forth? Mm -hmm. That speaks to the character of a nation. I mean, black people have suffered long enough in this country. And I believe that, yes, we're on the move. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a mood in black people of being resistant, being disgruntled, of being righteously angry. 
I mean, yes. I mean, we we as a people, we're tired of always being about somebody's issues. Right. We're always something that somebody has to attend to. There's always something coming at us, you know, this kind of stuff, you know. I mean, there's there's enough of, 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 of American history that has put on us these kind of conditions that you would think they would be tired of it. But they're not. And so, therefore, we have some thinking to do about, you know, the need to say, okay, how do we get out of this? One would we get out of it is we expand the range of ideas coming from a large and larger pool of thinkers as to what it is we need to be thinking about. Exactly. And we're not doing that. Describe what it was like, because you talk about this a lot in class. Describe what it was like meeting Malcolm X when he came to Howard in the fall of 1961. Okay. Well, I had come to Howard as a freshman in 60, straight out of uh, high school in Washington, D.C., and and 1961, I was taking a course in U.S. government, and the instructor informed us that uh, Malcolm would be coming to campus. And um, it was not presented to us as something that was, you know, a major moment for you and, and you're going to hear one of the leading figures in the civil rights movement. It was, it was more of, well, uh, this is an extracurricular um, opportunity for you to have an experience that, uh, that can only be had in a, in a setting like this where he's coming to debate um, Bayard Rustin here at, uh, at, at Crampton. He so, debated Bayard Rustin at Howard? Yes. That, that was when he did it? Yes. I was listening to that a few weeks ago. Yeah. That was at Howard. That's why he was there. Wow. Fall of 1961. Wow. And Bayard Rustin was second in command to Roy Wilkins Mm -hmm. of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, you know, conceptually, ideologically, in in terms of activism, they represented two totally, totally different approaches to liberation. Exactly. To to so-called the struggle. Completely different approaches. Yeah, so so to hear them go at it, you know, was was supposed to be a major moment and so forth. Um, but what I want to say is that he, he was not pumped up, you know, you know, you got to go here. He's going to be on campus. You should go here. Okay, thing, you know. He didn't have that same type of draw back then, right? No. As, as he as like like how we look at him now, mm-hmm. he wasn't the same. Not at how. No, no, no. But he was going to be here to debate a major figure for the NAACP, so it was a major event, but not so much built around him. Yeah. Um, because this, the assumption was, he speaks to a different population. He, he, his appeal is not to university students, okay? So, so he, he's not here to recruit you, kind of thing, you know, because that population is not here at Howard, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I went and, and, you know, I was not very politically engaged as a young person. I grew up in Northeast Washington, D.C., and, 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 you know, I was not into politics. I was more into community life and academics and church and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went, and I was, to make a long story, story very short, I was overwhelmed by the man who won his sheer presence Okay, he, he's, he's very fair-skinned, okay, had almost reddish-brown hair, you know, yeah. fair, fair hair, um, uh, glasses, but 
his voice was, you know, resound, he had a very resounding voice. But what was most impressive to me was his message, was I, what I took away from him, you know. It was not specifics of his debate, so much it was as, because people pretty much knew how they differed, you know. You know, one was a legalistic approach, you know, yeah. in the courts, and, and, and the other was, you know, take it to the streets, you know, you know direct, you know, and, and, and so the opposition was very clear, you know. But there was the understanding that you need as many different approaches as you could. You know, this is an ugly monster. You need everything you can get from as many people as you can get. So there was space for each one of them to have a role in, in, in the struggle. But what he said to us pretty much challenged me to recognize that to be a black person, to, to be at an institution, to have an education, places a special responsibility on you. You know, to also be about what it means for you to be here and in the struggle, what it means for you to have an education, be a black person. It, it, it can't be about yourself or, or what this means for you individually because there are so many others who can't be here. There are so many others who need what you can do to help them. So all he, all he did, essentially, was first something very simple. And that is placed on your heart and on your mind, on your spirit, the responsibility to put your education to work for liberation. The responsibility put it to work for, for liberation and not for yourself. That's right. That's that's a that's a powerful message. You see, and and see that's that's fueled my teaching. You see, because I I, I want to teach with the idea that I want my students to have that connection to what yeah. is your education all about. There's work to be done. Exactly. There's something in the community that needs something you can bring. It's your responsibility to be about bringing it. I mean, Malcolm laid that on my heart in, in 1961. And I, I can tell how, how, how profound it was because that was one of the first things that she told us. I did. In class. I wanted you to know. And it was, it was perfect for me because I had just finished his autobiography like two weeks before yeah. that. It, it came at a perfect time. My last few years as, as a professor, I, I would start my class wanting my students to know who was standing in front of them. Who am I with you? Mm -hmm. I wanted my students to feel a connection to the person I was and all that I had gone through to get to where they are right now, to be with them. And I would talk, and the most important thing that happened to me as a student was Malcolm's visit. I wanted them to know he came and, and picked me up. He came and put me on solid ground. He, he came and gave me clarity and focus as to what, what education affords. It's, it's, first of all, it's a privilege for you to be here. It is, most definitely. And understand that with privilege comes responsibility. You know, he wanted us to recognize the importance of not being part of this or part of that but being part of something and making the contribution that only you can make by being an educated black man or black woman. Precisely. That, that's that's the biggest thing. That, that's our biggest responsibility. And I feel like that's one of the biggest things that I can take away from my experience at HBCU is that I, I feel a, such a bigger sense of in, in indebtedness to, mm -hmm. to my people yeah. and, and to 
just for my community as a whole. And I feel like that's one of the biggest reasons why I advocate so much, a lot more for black students to come back yes. to HBCUs because I feel like what you what you gain from this experience, not only what it makes you want to do outside, but but the sense of community that you have when you're, when you're at an institution like this yeah. is something that, that is hard yeah. to recreate in the outside world, especially in 2023. It is. But that, I mean, that was a wonderful thought you just you just um, articulated. And, and to be so young as a, as a student saying what you just said and feeling a sense of connectivity to, to liberation in that sense is, is exactly what he wanted to inspire. And he, he's, Malcolm has inspired me so much. Yeah. I mean, you see that picture yeah. right there. Like. We well, see one of the things that, imp- yeah, that and the other one, one of the things that impressed me about about Malcolm was, you know, I mean, he was he was on the street. He, he was living a life uh, with numbers, and, you know, he was arrested. He, went for, he found his soul, you know, becoming a black Muslim and all that in prison and, and all. But something that Malcolm did while he was there, because he didn't have a formal education. Mm-hmm. He was just reading. Okay. Malcolm in his autobiography said something to all of us about how he got himself ready to become a spokesperson for liberation for black people. Because he knew once he joined the black Muslims and had that passion to be about blackness and, and understanding what what our identities should mean and what our work should be. Okay. He, 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 he didn't feel that he was ready to, to be a spokesperson, but there was something he did while he was in prison. What was that? He took the dictionary. He read every single word. And he went through the damn dictionary. He learned the words. He, he became a master of its content. He knew that he could speak to the boy and the girl and the man and the woman in the street because he grew up with them. Mm-hmm. But he needed to speak to power. He needed to speak to black people who were well-educated. Exactly. He needed to learn the language of those who were dominant. He needed to learn how to master the language of mainstream American discourse. And what did he do? He took it upon himself to do just that. You know, it's crazy okay. that you say that. Okay. Because Martin Luther King, towards the end of his life, he did the opposite. Martin Luther King in 1966, he went, he, he lived in the in the slum of Lawndale in Chicago yeah. Yeah. To, to live amongst the common black people yeah. that, that he didn't grow up around. That's right. It, it's just crazy to see those those different parallels. That's, that's true. That, that the leaders go through in order to reach as many people as they can. And it also speaks to something that both of them understand that we need to understand, and that is be as versatile as you can in the skill sets you have. When it comes to language, be able to talk to the groups that you want to impact. Make sure you can connect to how they frame it, how they discuss it, you know, how, how, how to reach them and to let them know that you're connected to them in a way that but they, they don't see you and the way you talk as a stranger. Exactly. Okay? He knew that. You have to so, be able to relate to them. That's right. You have to be versatile linguistically. So... You know, the people raise this whole question about Ebonics, is it what they call Ebonics, or black idiom, or black dialect, or black talk, or whatever you want to call it. It, it. The issue is that it has an integrity all its own because its foundation as a language was set in the experiences of the people who created that language. Exactly. That's where its meaning comes from. Absolutely. And that doesn't make it any less 
than any other form of dialect or language. All language is no more but the expressive medium of the people who created it. Precisely. Okay? And it's not good, bad, high, low, correct, incorrect. It's none of, that's something people bring in as, as judgmental criteria. It is a language that expresses the soul of the people who created it. And it cannot be other than what their experiences have shaped it to be. So, so that black talk, black idiom, has a powerful expressive dynamic all its own. And when those words are used in the way that they were designed to be used by the people who created them, there's no other way to say it but the way that the community has shaped those words to be said in just that way. So it has a beauty and an integrity, a kind of character, of expressivity that cannot be altered in order to be, quote, standard or to say it, quote, right, and so forth. Now, what, what all, all people have to learn, of course, is that you, if you want to talk to populations other than the ones who shape this, this language to be the way it is when you talk to people who have participated in its history, then you have to make some adjustments yourself. You can't say, well, I'm going to take my language everywhere I go and I'm going to say it the way I say it. They say, well, see, now, now you're trying to be deliberately ineffective. That's not what leaders do. It, they don't That's do not that. what the great leaders do. I mean, follow Malcolm. I mean, what did he say you had to do? Exactly, exactly. He said, talk to, the, to people in power in the language of power. That's and why? Because they cannot ignore you. Because you yeah, have spoken their knowledge. language to them. Exactly. Okay? Exactly. And so he knew. He already had mastered out. I mean, he, he knew how to talk to black people. But he also wanted to be able to talk to the United Nations. He also wanted to be able to talk to power. Challenge them to understand. Them. And he did. He also needed to talk to black intellectuals. Black middle class. And that's what he did. And he did. So, and it's not like selling out. You know, people, he was, no. When you make the necessary adjustments in your own performance repertoire or your own performance um, arsenal, you know, what's in your toolbox, all you're doing is, is rendering yourself to be more effective in more settings in which you want to have influence. Exactly. Be listened to. This kind of thing. He did. Malcolm showed that. You know, so I respect him so much. One, he, he came and picked me up and gave me a sense of direction and clarity when he came to Howard. Um, he wasn't some hothead blowing off in the sky. No, he carried himself with dignity. The man spoke with power, under command. I mean, he spoke in a way that, that I mean, you, you, you just would just sit, all you could do was sit and listen. Because he was saying something to you that he knew you needed to hear. You know, this is not trying to engage you to join my, my, my orientation or my group and to come with me. And, and, and no, it was about something more universal than that. And that is the universe of liberation and struggle that all nations are going through. We need people who are combatants, who are ready to take that on and do what needs to be done to challenge it. And university students have a responsibility. Your education cannot be just for yourself. We have a responsibility. I think that's something that we need to embrace even more. And, you know, time time is running out. I know you said you have to go soon. Mm -hmm. But, I, of course... Oh, yes, too. Hey, have we been talking that long? Yeah. <laughs> see, see what happens when yeah. you're talking about something that means something? Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It happens far too often yeah. for me. But I've, before we go, I do yeah. want to talk about 
your experience just as a faculty member? How are they, how how has your teaching style kind of evolved from when you first started teaching in the seventies to to well now until you're retired? Well, see, now you're getting into something that's going to take me another hour. <laughs> uh, I don't have it. The one thing I was I, I I'll say this very quickly. Um, I taught I taught at Howard long enough to allow my students to help me understand how to best influence them. Um, initially, when I started teaching, I you know I had a curriculum, I had a syllabus, I had lesson. I I I just went methodically through because that's how you start. I mean, you you want to get it right, and you know you know his 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 the the course before you came in here, so. You know, teach it. You know, yeah. it's kind of. But it it, it, it it took me a while uh, as a faculty member to realize that that's that's not what the student needs. The, 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 because I mean, all I need to do is give them that, and, and you know, a student can do that on his own, quite frankly. You know, as long as what's made available is made available. But what the student needs really is a faculty member who cares about them as individuals, who 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 locks in to their commitment to be about their elevation intellectually, morally, you know, um, uh, socio-emotionally, you know, psychologically. The whole person needs to be touched. And so, therefore, a lot of times, I wouldn't even, when I would teach, I wouldn't even follow the syllabus as written. I would bounce off of the dynamics of what was happening in class. So the next class would benefit from what I did last class. I realize I'm. I need to teach with them, not to them. Yeah. Okay. You know. And so, the one thing I would say to all faculty members who who come to Howard and teach at Howard is, let your students be a resource for you as to how best to reach them, how best to teach them, and it has to be a two way street. Your students have a lot to teach you about how teaching is best presented. You know, you know, and, and the best teachers are the ones who are the most responsive. They're not self-centered. They're not defensive. You know, they they don't like your evaluation, so therefore, you know, you know, they, they don't care. No, it, it, evaluations to me have never mattered to me. Students have often said good things to me, but but sometimes not. But the, but but that's not the issue. It's it's what happens in the dynamics of the classroom. I'm not interested in what people put on paper. When we come together, I want to. I want you to be with me right here, right now. And because I need to grow from how you are responding to what I'm bringing to you. And if you don't understand something or you're challenged by it, then feel free to let me know that. Hit me with a hard question. If there are any contradictions, state them. I mean, when you create an environment like that in the classroom, class comes alive. The students don't mind coming. Because they're going to be part of a conversation where, you know, they what they ball. say matters. I, I agree 100% as a student. That's, those are the best classes. Yeah. There is no real, you know, hierarchy of authority. I mean, you, there always is because I, I have to give a grade. Yeah. But, but, but the reality is I don't have to let that be the dynamic that we have to have ahead of us. What's ahead of us is what just came out of what you just said. Or what I just said to you that I see you wanting to think about. I mean, the the life of the class really is is that, and and that has been my life at Howard is learning from my students.
connecting my work to liberation, inspiring them to want to be leaders and be about agency themselves. And, and I did it for 50 years. I, I learned from Malcolm. Malcolm was with me every time I went to class because I wanted others to get what I got, you know, from him. You know, so teaching for liberation, teaching and inspiring to be intellectually powerful. There's nothing more reassuring than knowing that you are well-educated. There's nothing that gives you more of a lift than knowing that your mind is well-tuned and that you are, in a sense, pushed by those things that are elevating, that you have a commitment to liberation in a sincere way. It's not just stuff you talk about, but it's something that you feel and you're ready to give and knowing that you have the tools and the preparation to give it. Yeah. I think that's the best feeling in the world. It truly is one of the yeah. best feelings. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you yeah. coming on and sharing mm -hmm. your knowledge, not only on my podcast, but just in the classroom for all these years. You, yeah. I mean, you, you impacted me so much yeah. with everything that, that I learned in your class. Mm -hmm. and, um, that's why you're here today. All our conversations that we had yeah. all in the classroom and yeah. outside the classroom, mm -hmm. it really, it really helped me grow a lot. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, really, it's truly been an honor. Well, it's, it's interesting how you, you, you've actually brought so much of what we've talked about, you know, to this moment. Because a lot of things that you've said to me, a lot of things that, that, that I've said to you have really been the continuity of what we started when we, when we were just talking my, in my cubicle area, <laughs> you know, the last, the last year. So I thank you for having me. Um, uh, Although my career as a professor is, is, is over in the formal sense of being on a faculty and, and being assigned formal classes to teach and so forth. You know, once a teacher, always a teacher. And, and we're all teachers in a sense because we are teachers for each other. So if we can keep that spirit alive yeah. and, and, you know, I'll always be there for you and anyone else that I can help. Um, my career isn't over because as long as I've got some work that I want to do, there's some projects I have for myself that I've discussed with you that I want to write about, and um, I'll be about that. So I hope I'll, I'll stay in touch with you. Most definitely. Yeah, if there's anything I can ever do for you, just let me know. And, and I want the audience to know that Dr. Wright is writing a book called mm -hmm. My Life in Segregated America. That, that's a, still the name of it, right? Yeah, it's My Life in Segregation. Yeah, My Life in Segregation. Um, when it comes out, y'all definitely need to buy that. Um, I know I am. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm pretty much committed to trying to get it out uh, by the end of the year. Uh, I, I, what I've shared a little bit of here um, is something that I want to put put down and have people think about, reflect on. So many good things came out of a time when we supposedly were marginalized, because the real question was not being marginalized. The real question was. What do you do it when you have it all to yourself? What did black people do? Because segregation also created opportunity. All right. To be about what you deep down and, and constitutionally were as a people. And I think my experiences in segregation as a black person, you know, was an experience that showed the best of a people at work. I'm not saying that my experience was common to segregation everywhere because I know that's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, segregation was really quite ugly in a lot of places. Yeah. But this, I'm talking about Washington, D.C. 
Washington, D.C. was a different kind of community during the 40s and 50s, and I was the beneficiary of that. So I'm going to share that. Okay. I'm excited to okay. read it. The yeah. audience is excited to read yeah. it. Okay. Thank you for coming on, Dr. Thank Ray. you. It's you are. Honor. Thank you. Everybody, hey, as we always say, as long as y'all show love, we'll stay consistent. Black Lotus out. Josiah out.